Welcome to Grace Bible Fellowship Sermon Archive. We pray that you will be greatly blessed as you listen to this sermon, delivered verse by verse by Pastor Teacher Ben Dowdy. Join us as we are pointed to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ alone, as recorded in God's Holy Word. Father, thank you for what we have sung and heard and prayed already, Lord, unless you meet us here in this place in this hour, we read and we pray and we sing in vain, we acknowledge our dependence upon your Holy Spirit. We ask, Father, that you would show us Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure that everyone here can remember, if you were alive at that time, where you were on September the 11th, 2001. Uh, Not much different, perhaps, than people that were in Jerusalem on this Good Friday, particularly a guy by the name of Pilate and another guy by the name of Barabbas. I mean, think about it. Barabbas started the day off in jail, sentenced to be crucified, perhaps, perhaps between the two robbers on the hill of Golgotha. But Barabbas ended the day a free man. And Pilate, superstitious Pilate, convinced of the innocence of Jesus, gave way to pressure and handed the the innocent to be condemned. So I, I think that everybody that lived through that day in the city of Jerusalem would have remembered it with crystal clarity that the Jews, the the crowd, the, the criminal, the governor. And so today I want us to look at verses 1 to 15 as we are just inching our way to the cross. Jesus is nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. At some one to three o'clock in the morning, the process of illegal trials of Christ begin in the middle of the night. Around the middle of the night, perhaps at 3 a.m., Peter denies to a servant girl in the courtyard that he even knows Jesus. He denies any knowledge of Jesus. And in those fateful hours, early morning, Jesus moves back and forth between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the religious leaders and the Romans. And at some 5 a.m., he ends up in the presence of Pilate. And I want us to think about the characters of the day in these 15 verses. The first thing you could write down in your notes is the word Rome, because we understand that Pilate is there representative they had many Herods that 
governed the Jews from a great distance because they're in Rome and Jerusalem is so far removed from Rome. That didn't work out so well. And so around A.D. 26, a guy by the name of Pontius Pilate steps into that role as prefect or governor of that southern Judean region in which Jerusalem was geographically placed. And Pilate was such a character, he was a man who was very proud. He was proud. In, uh, in verse 5, it, it says that Pilate was amazed at the silence of Jesus. But if you hear things that I say today and you don't find them in Mark 15, 1 to 15, please note that there are four gospel accounts. There's Matthew and Luke and John that also give us a picture, a fuller picture of what is going on. And I think you can find in those parallel accounts. For example, John tells us that Pilate was not only amazed, but he was annoyed at Jesus. Here's what he says in uh, John 19, 10 and following, he said to Jesus, you won't speak to me. Don't you know I have power to release you and authority to crucify you? Don't you know who I am? A lot of personal pronouns there. And you know what Jesus says to Pilate? Pretty straightforward. He says, you know, Pilate, you would not have any authority to do anything if it were not given to you by heaven. You wouldn't have any authority, but what's been given to you? But we see that Pilate was a very proud man, and he was also a very shrewd man. If you look at verse 10, it says that Pilate was aware that the chief priest had handed Christ over. Why? Because of what? Envy. What did they do? They said about Christ, he's proclaiming to be a king. He opposes Caesar. They're alleging that their problem with Christ is that he's an insurrectionist. He's rebelling against the government. Jesus never rebelled against the government. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. But you see, Pilate got that. He knew that. He knew that the real reason that the Jewish religious leaders wanted to get rid of Jesus was because they were jealous of his popularity with the common Jewish people. And Pilate was not only proud and shrewd, but he was a man pleaser. He is the ultimate poster boy for what a coward looks like. I mean, think about it. Pilate on this day has the ability to do the right thing and he does the wrong thing. He saves his neck, but he loses his soul. That's a pretty bad trade-off when you stop and think about it. The gospel tells us that we shouldn't fear the one that kills the body, but the one who can cast both soul and body into hell. But you see, Pilate was a people pleaser. If you would want to put an epitaph on his tombstone, look down at verse 15. This would be a fitting 
summary of Pilate's life. Look at verse 15. Wishing to what? Satisfy the crowd. Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. What a despicable thing. He was also superstitious. In the Matthew account of this story, we see that his wife was having a problem with nightmares. Does anybody here have nightmares? Bad dreams? Well, Pilate's wife sent word to her hubby. She said, don't have anything to do with this guy. He's a righteous man, and I have suffered much because of him in a dream. And and so Pilate is in this uncomfortable place between a rock in a really hard place because he sees the innocence of Jesus and he sees the statement of his wife. But he is attempting the impossible. What is the impossible? It is the place that so many today tempt. It's that place of neutrality concerning Christ. People want to like Jesus. People want to high-five Jesus in our very chilled, tolerant, Western world. We don't like anger. We don't like hatred. We don't like to say, this man, rule over me. We just want to be in the middle. That was Pilate. He was in this impossible place. He says stuff like, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. See to it yourself. But Pilate is frustrated, amazed, and annoyed because Jesus is silent. He's silent. And Pilate is forced to a decision. He's forced to go this way and crown Jesus with gold or to go this way and crown him with thorns. You see, the very nature of the message of the gospel is this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, that's John the Baptist in John 1.29. But if you go back about 700 years, here's what the prophet, the mouthpiece for God, Isaiah, says about the suffering servant. He says, led to a lamb as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is Silent, so he did not open his mouth. And the silence of Jesus and the innocence of Jesus forced Pilate's hand. So we see Rome, Pilate, we see the robber Barabbas, but we see also, uh, we see this, we see Rome, Pilate, robber Barabbas, I don't think I have anything for the third point. So you can skip over to, uh, or the robber, Barabbas. Uh, Here's the other key guy we're going to look at today. Here he is. He's in jail. He's in prison. He has been convicted of a crime. Actually, (laughs) if you take the composite together, he's an insurrectionist. He's a murderer. And he's a robber. You can look at all four accounts and you come up, this guy was a bad dude. He wasn't just randomly picked out of a hat. 
He was a standout of bad guys. I don't know what comes to your mind. From old school, Charles Manson, you you picture someone that's a really bad guy. That was Barabbas. He wasn't just, you know, a halfway bad guy. And if you look down at verse 27 of Mark chapter 15, it says, They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And this is stunning to think about that that Barabbas presumably would have woken up that Friday morning thinking he was going to be nailed to a cross along with some other bad guys, possibly in the middle of the two robbers. And yet his freedom was about to be purchased for him by the death of an innocent man. So we see Rome, Pilate, robber, Barabbas, and then we see the rabble, the crowd, the crowd that was there that day. You see them referenced two or three different times in this passage, that that there's all of these bad characters, and there's the vacillation of the crowd. I mean, what irony we see in the crowd. They've come to Jerusalem from out of town, if you will. They are celebrating the holidays or holy days of holy days for the Jews. It's Passover time. They, They are there to remember God's deliverance from Egypt. They are there to eat that Passover meal that speaks of the goodness and the mercy of God to deliver them out of slavery. And they who are remembering God and his goodness are at the same time screaming, screaming for the death of God's son. And then we see the religious leaders. The religious leaders who along with others are saying Jesus is perverting the nation. He's forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. He's claiming to be king, not Caesar, all lies, all fabrications. And here we see the example of John chapter 1. That Jesus came unto his own and his own did not receive him. Do you realize that when Peter and Paul went Peter starting in Jerusalem, and by the end of Acts, Paul in Rome waiting to be tried. The greatest opposition they had when they spoke of Christ was from the Jews. And the greatest opposition that they had was was from the religious leaders of the Jews. But in the middle of Rome and the robber and the rabble and the religious leaders, there is one figure that permeates the entire scene. He is largely silent. He briefly answers in verse 2, and it is a short answer that Mark records, but it's the Redeemer. It's the Redeemer. It's Jesus He's observing, he's he's listening to the words of Pilate. And we often like to say that Jesus is on trial before Pilate. You could flip that and say that Pilate is on trial before Jesus. 
Because after all, the Father has handed the judgment of everyone over to his Son. And he is listening to the cries for his crucifixion. He's pondering what is about to happen to Barabbas. This Jesus is abused and he's mocked and he's clubbed and he's spit on and he's whipped and he's smashed in the face and he's nailed to a cross. And as he hangs on the cross, he says this statement, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Oh, how we who at once were far off from Jesus who were astonished at Jesus, now look at the one in whom Isaiah said, there is no beauty that we should be attracted to him. And he becomes infinitely beautiful to those that have been purchased by his blood. So those are the characters. There's Pilate, Representing Rome, there's Barabbas representing criminals. There's the crowd, the rabble. There's the religious leaders as the redeemer. So now let's consider for a few minutes the questions that are asked. There are actually five questions in verse 2, verse 4, verse 9, verse 12, and verse 14. The focus is Pilate's dilemma. Some of his questions are to Jesus, and some of his questions are to the religious leaders. But five different times, Pilate, and in this uncomfortable place that he finds himself in, that he did not wish to be in, he is asking the questions as the governor. It's interesting that the only time that Jesus really answers any question in this account is when it's in verse 2. If you look at it. He says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, it is as you say. So when you grapple with Jesus answering or being quiet, what do you come up with? It seems that when a legitimate question is asked to Jesus, he states matter-of-factly the answer. But if it's just a stupid question, if it's an erroneous question, then he's just quiet. That's kind of what I see here. I want you to consider question number three in verse nine for a minute. Pilate is answering them, saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? Have you thought about what Pilate was after when he asked that? Maybe, hmm, did he expect them to say, yeah, yeah. We want you to release Jesus. When he gives them the option of Barabbas, this insurrectionist, this murderer, this robber, does he assume that they will decide, yeah, release the good guy, release the good guy and kill the bad guy? What is he thinking? I mean, here he is having an opportunity to to release Jesus, to, to release the innocent and to leave the guilty in his place to receive what he justly deserves. But oh, Pilate does not get the level of hatred that they have towards Jesus. 
And it is true then and it is true today that often the most religious people in the world are those who hate the Jesus of history. The Jesus of this book, God's word, the most. And then we see another question in verse 12. Look at it. Then what shall I do with him? They, they didn't want him to release. They said, no, we, we would rather have Barabbas. So then his natural question is going to be, I'm only allowed to release one. And by the way, this apparently, if you look at verse 6, is something like a presidential pardon. Did you know that throughout U.S. history, uh, I think all but two presidents have pardoned, if you total all of them up, it's perhaps hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. I, I think it's sort of in place, if you study verse 6 here, to say that, that Pilate would release someone to get good on the good side of the people that he was to govern. They, they didn't like him. We could go into all the reasons why, but this was a way he could sort of get on their good side. And so he's saying, I, I, I'm allowed to release one. If I release Barabbas, then, then we're going to have to do something with Jesus. What are we going to do here? And, and it's practical in the moment of the hot seat that Pilate finds himself on, but it is a, um, really the question of the ages, isn't it? What do you do with Jesus? He's inevitable. He forces our hand. Neutrality is not an option. Because you have to deal with the Jesus of a virgin birth, of a sinless life, of a substitutionary death, of a bodily resurrection, of being seen of many eyewitnesses over 40 days, of ascending to the right hand of the Father, and his inevitable Word that he would return and take his own to be with him forever. You got to deal with him. Your agnostic friend. Your religious and irreligious friend have to deal with him. We deal with him. You do not live in a theological, moral, neutral zone. You are not in a relatively safe place. You do not come into this life morally neutral you come dead in your trespasses and sins and you are forced to move into the only safe zone and that is believing in Jesus and submitting to Jesus listen to the words of John 3 17 and following for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him the gospel means good story. It means good news. That's good news. Whoever believes in Christ is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. So we have Barabbas. He's an insurrectionist. You have Barabbas, he's a robber. You have Barabbas, he's a murderer. And if we're honest, you and I too are insurrectionists. We came into this universe. If you're in the parenting class, you are reminded of this with your own kids. 
And all you got to do is turn the clock back to when you were born to your mom and dad. You came in as the captain of your own ship, the master of your own fate. You wanted nothing to do with the rule of a sovereign, good, righteous, gracious God over you. You did not want. You had a fist. You were hostile in mind towards God. That is insurrection. You say, Ben, I've never taken a knife and plunged it into the heart of someone and killed them. But if you study Matthew chapter 5, I think verse 21 and following, you see that when you have hatred in your heart towards a fellow human being and you speak words that rip them to shreds and it comes from hatred, you are a murderer, Jesus says. You see, we're all right there with Barabbas. Maybe we're not as bad as Barabbas. I hope you're not as bad as Barabbas, but we all are guilty like Barabbas. We are justifiably condemned, and all of us have to deal with this question, is what am I going to do with Jesus? There's another question in verse 14. Because in verse 13, it says they come back with the same cry, crucify him. And Pilate says, what evil has he done? And if you look at the context then, and if you consider the purpose for which God gave human government, even today, you see that there is a grace from our creator to punish the evildoer. That the guilty should be punished and the innocent should be set free. But the reality, listen to me, is that the guilty is about to go free and the innocent is about to be punished. You know, we often say that in the good news of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus is revealed. And in the Acts, he is preached. And in the letters of Peter and Paul and James and others, he is explained So let's let Peter and let's let Paul help us explain this. First of all, Peter, in 1 Peter 3.18, he says that Christ also died for sins. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. The just in place of, instead of, the unjust, the insurrectionist, the hater, the murderer, the thief. You say, Ben, I've never stolen anything. Have you robbed God of his glory? (laughs) You see, thievery is a lot bigger. Have you spent time, company time, just doing frivolous stuff on the internet? You've robbed someone of time that was theirs. See, we're all there with him. Let's let Paul help us out. He says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What evil has he done, Pilate says. But here's the ultimate kicker. Verse 15. Wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Is there some of Pilate in you? What keeps you from, from Jesus? 
What keeps you wishing to satisfy? Remember my dad in World War II, he was a, a believer, South Pacific Marine Corps. And one day, after my dad went to be with the Lord, a man came to our house who had fought with my dad in the South Pacific, Gus Matero. He smuggled Bibles behind the Iron Curtain at a particular point in his life during that regime. And uh, he said, you know, one day he walked into a tent and my dad was witnessing to one of his fellow soldiers. And Gus Matero was not a Christian. And he started mocking Jesus. He said, you're not going to let Dowdy talk you into this Jesus stuff, are you? And that man did not believe in Christ. And pretty soon the Japanese were bombing and a piece of shrapnel hit this man. And he dove into a foxhole and Gus Matero jumped in the foxhole on top of him. He got hit by the shrapnel and his blood was on the soldier and that soldier died. And Gus Matero said later, he said, I believe my blood was on that man in two ways, literally. But I mocked Jesus. Very interesting story. But you see, I think when we look at, at this, not only from the, the viewpoint of the characters and not only from the standpoint of the, of the questions, I think we come up with a couple of challenges that I want to leave you with this, this morning as we begin to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table. I think, I think one challenge comes from Pilate. And, and it's just this idea that, that Jesus is inevitable, that he cannot be avoided, that he cannot be put off. You cannot deal with the questions of Jesus later in your life. That's never the stance of Scripture. You say, Ben, I'll, I've had people tell me, I'll deal with Jesus later. I want to have fun now. Listen, you don't know. That's why in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, after Paul speaks about the apostles being ambassadors, representatives of King Jesus, he says the message is get right with God, and he says today is the day of salvation. You know when I stand up to preach? You know, someone has said you preach as if Jesus was, was crucified yesterday, he was buried today, and he'll come alive again tomorrow, but I preach as if there is no tomorrow. You know, in certain parts of Europe in the old days, when the preacher stood up in the lectern, he could look out the back window and see a cemetery. Isn't that interesting? Today is the day of salvation. When you look at, at Pilate, you have to deal with Jesus. You cannot wiggle out of a commitment to Jesus, a decision about Christ. You see, no decision is a decision with Pilate. Here's my question to all of you, Grace Bible Fellowship. Are you going to save your neck or your soul? You see, Pilate went for his neck and he lost his soul. You want eternal salvation or do you want to go for the things of the world and live it up? Now, I would argue 
that to know Jesus is to really begin to live and to know life. He says, I've come that you might have life and have it to the, to the full. You don't really start living the way your creator designed you to live until you accept Jesus and say, command me, Jesus. I'm yours. You know what's interesting? Jesus doesn't like force his way in, in, in a sense, right? I mean, we understand that God is sovereign and that he enables us to believe and to get it. Otherwise, we would just be left in darkness forever. That's another side of this thing. But every time you look at how in the New Testament it says we're to believe or we're to repent, it is directed to the human will. And while God must grant the faith and God must grant the repentance, it is your responsibility, fellow GBFer, to believe, to turn from, and to submit to Christ. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Your hand is forced. You must choose. But I also think not only from Pilate do we see that Jesus is inevitable, but from Barabbas we see a picture of the great exchange. The great exchange. You see, the, the person that I would like for you and for me today to most identify with in this story is not the high priest. It's not the Jewish Supreme Court. It's not the rabble. It's not the crowd. It's not Pilate. It's Barabbas. I would like for you to identify with a guy that was a sinner, with a guy that was in the jailhouse of sin, condemned to die, later perhaps to be crucified on a cross, maybe even the cross that Jesus ended up on. I think the first thing that I would encourage you to do as we begin to prepare our hearts for the Lord's table is just to see your own sinfulness. You know, I think one of the reasons that we're not shocked by, that we're not stunned by, that we're not amazed by the grace of God and the mercy of Christ and that the Lord's table, that the bread and the grape juice are just a ritual that we kind of go through is we do not realize how desperate we really are and were. We, we really don't understand what it means to be dead in trespasses and sins, to be walking along following the prince of the power of the air, to be by very nature an object of God's wrath. We don't understand even on our best days, how far we fall short of the glory of God. That, that in our best moments as a Christian, when we're sharing the gospel, that when we're pushing a cup of cold water across the table to one of the least of Christ's disciples, that there is a sense in which we don't even breathe without that being stained with pride and self and sin. And I love the songs that we've been singing. I love that Jesus said, remember my death till we come through something as simple as wine or grape juice and as something as simple as a little snack of bread. That should humble us because that's the only way 
that we begin to understand the great exchange. The second thing I would have you to do as you prepare your heart for the Lord's table is to ponder the perfection of Christ. It's interesting that all the way through Mark chapter 15 and also the parallel accounts that, that Pilate cannot do anything but repeatedly affirm and confirm the innocence of this man. <laughs> There's no sin. And, and I want to give you a bigger picture of this. In, in Isaiah 53 verse 9, it says that Jesus had done no violence. Unlike the Barabbas in us that has sometimes been angry and violent. Jesus did no no. He was never once sinfully angry, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Listen, he never colored the truth. He never misrepresented the truth. He never told a white lie. You and I have spoken a bucket load of them. We have twisted things. We have withheld information that should have been shared, and we have embellished stories that we should not have. And preachers, believe me, can be some of the worst because they do a lot of talking. And I am often convicted by the scriptures that says, where many words are, sin is never absent. That's why I need to pray and you need to pray more and more. Oh Lord, set a guard over my mouth. The psalmist was aware of that. That little two ounce floppy mucous membrane thing in your mouth. Whew. I think another thing that we see in John 8, 29 is Jesus making this astonishing, crazy statement. He says, I always do the things that please the Father. Now, if Jesus is not 100% perfect, you're saying he is an egomaniac, right? He is stuck on how many likes he gets on his Instagram, right? Or if he's really God and he says, I always, I always do the things that please my father, that means he went through the terrible twos without being terrible once. It doesn't mean like you and I might say, well, I do what pleases my father. Maybe I was 80% firing on my cylinders last week. But Jesus could say that. And I would encourage you to turn over, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 7, because I think we see another beautiful picture of the perfection of Christ. And on your way to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 and 27, let me remind you that for the Jews, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they did not have the Lord's table like you and I are about to celebrate. What they had was a slit throat of an unblemished lamb. They had a burnt offering. They had an innocent animal from the first fruits of their flock, not some stray, not some imperfect animal with blemishes, but a spotless, perfect animal. They slit its throat and blood spilled out. It was a bloody, bloody religion. And they would symbolically, if you will, the priest at that time would symbolically place his hands on the animal. And by doing so, he would be saying, we're symbolically transferring our own guilt, our own sin on this animal that does not deserve to die. Because our God is other than us. He's holy. He is undefiled. And you and I are sinful. 
And the book of Hebrews really takes all of that shadow of the Old Testament and it shows us that Jesus is the final word. Look at verse 26. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 26 says, It was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Here's the difference between what goes on, say, in a Catholic service where the Eucharist is understood by the doctrine of the Catholic Church to be Jesus Christ being re-sacrificed that Jesus' death on the cross is being done over and over and over again. This is not that. That piece of bread that you take and that grape juice that you drink is not literally the blood of Jesus and it's not literally the body of Jesus. It's just a picture. Because what we can rejoice in, what we can boast in, what we can adore God for is that he suffered for sins once for all through the offering of himself. Here's the difference between the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons and all kinds of people that ring your doorbell is they have a sense of a deity that needs to be appeased and they do the pacifying of that deity God was angry with sinners, but in himself, he became one of us and self-substituted himself instead of us. The just for the what? For the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And so when we look at Jesus, that he's holy, that he's harmless, that he's undefiled, that he's separate from sinners, we see Perfect righteousness when he was three. Perfect righteousness when he was 10. Perfect righteousness when he was 23. Why didn't Jesus just drop down from heaven at age 30, do his three years of ministry and go to the cross? I think one of the reasons is Jesus said at his baptism, I have to fulfill all righteousness. The requirements of the law need to be fulfilled. And you see, we needed Jesus, not just his death on the cross, but his perfect, obedient life lived out every second where he perfectly loved the father and perfectly loved his neighbor as himself all the time only always always please the father not just so the father could say ben you're not guilty but the father could look at ben and say i see you ben as if you had always lived jesus perfect obedient life even though you have not that's the doctrine of imputation, that God would credit my sin to Jesus when he gets hung on the tree at 9 a.m. that Good Friday, so that when I trust in Jesus as my Savior, my Master, God credits his perfect, obedient life to me. Do you live that? Do you rejoice in that? Do you thrill in that? Oh, I know the Lord's table is a somber time. I know we're called to examine ourselves. And thank you, Brother Doug, for, for that time of confession. But that we should not stay there, beloved. <laughs> we, we should go on to ponder the perfection of Christ and then finally to cling to the great exchange. 
You see, you know, when we get together and we go through membership interviews and we listen to your testimony, people say, well, why do you have membership interviews? Listen, I don't know the courtrooms of heaven. I don't know the, the names written in the Lamb's book of life. But I can listen to a person say, I believe that Jesus is Messiah, the Son of God. And I can say, I affirm that. Or not. You see, you need to say that Jesus is your only hope. He is, Jesus is not a, a knee brace. He is not a crutch. He does not make up for your lack of anything. Christ is all and in all. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul said, I preach nothing. I'm resolved to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Why? 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 I can't come up with anything new at GBF. Your future elders and pastors cannot give you anything new. It's the same message. It's Jesus. My guilt in exchange for his righteousness. My, his righteousness in exchange for my sin. Now what does that look like if you're here at GBF today and you don't know Christ? Maybe, maybe you're clinging. You're not clinging to this exchange that, that, that God credited my sin to Jesus on the cross and therefore I have run away by faith from trusting in my baptism, my church membership, my small group, my religious heritage, thinking I was a good person when I was born into the world. I'm like Paul in Philippians 3. I'm saying I count all of that manure, dung, poop. Let's call it what he calls it. Rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. What does that look like? I would say that you do not know salvation until you, it may not look like Paul on the road to Damascus. It might be real quiet. I know everybody's story is different, but the gospel is not different. It's the same my sinfulness, his perfection, God's holiness, grace through Jesus, dying on a cross, being raised by the Father on the third day to prove that what he did on the cross was enough. Period. There it is. And so if you're a non-Christian, this would be a great time to cling to, not just to the great exchange if that throws you, just to cling to Christ by faith. Call on Jesus and ask him to save you. You are Barabbas, I am Barabbas. Jesus suffers in our place. And I hope that you will not take the piece of bread and you will not take the grape juice unless you are resting in Christ through faith as your only hope. Unless you can say, I can envision this. I am Barabbas, I deserve God's punishment but he suffered for me therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ in Christ that's the question of the ages what do you do with Jesus let's stand as the worship team comes as we begin to move towards taking the elements. We're going to do it together. Paul will give you a bit more instruction. But let's pray as the worship team comes. Praise the Lord that his word is sufficient for our every need. 
Join us next time as we continue our study of God's infallible word. We would also love to have you join us at Grace Bible Fellowship. We meet together each Sunday from 9 a.m. to 10 a.m. for connections and 10 a.m. to 12.30 for our worship service. We are located at 1385 Northwestern Drive on the west side of El Paso, along with our hosting sister church, Mission de Gracia. If you have any questions, you can dial 915-861-6900 or visit our website at gracebibleelpaso.org. We would love to see you this Sunday as we proclaim Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ.